Hello, everybody. This is Charlie and Nicole. Hello, hello. And Beth, who you're about to meet on the podcast to Hell and Back. And I think most of you know, if you've listened to any of these podcasts, that the spirit of this podcast is to try to help equip people uh, with principles and skills and ways to cope with getting going through hell in your life. And uh, we have the honor and privilege to have Beth McRae with us today, who has gone through one of those forms of hell, one of the worst, in that she lost her son uh, in his young adult years to suicide a couple of years ago. And she's been uh, brave, bravely willing to come in uh, also because she knows this could be meaningful to people to hear about what she went through, uh, what her family went through, and how she has coped in the last couple of years, how she has continued to move in her life, how she has managed to tolerate what happened and make sense of it and, and what she's been doing. So it's work that's never ends, but she's going to give us a, an account of that and, and really this is a platform this this podcast the next one will go in more depth or, or breadth about it so we'll be able to follow up on things that we don't get to today and then we're also hoping to do one that would be the third one probably uh, that includes her family members who have also gone through this her husband uh, her son her other son and uh, her son's fiance uh, may may join us, and we're going to try to arrange that for the third um, the third meeting. So this is sort of a, a series to focus on 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 this through Beth's eyes and her experience. And so Beth, I want to I'm 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 already moved practically to tears just introducing you and uh, and saying that I really appreciate that you're willing to come on. I think it takes a certain spirit to do that and a willingness to to realize that this might be valuable to a number of people. So thank you for joining. You're welcome. I hope, I hope that it will be. I hope that it will be. Yeah, I'd like to really to second that. And, um, you know, I spent about six years, maybe a little longer, working at um, New York Suicide and Crisis Intervention Hotline. And I know that for a lot of, all of the calls, really, that, that that I took um, anonymously, but you know there was so much. There were oftentimes people, families of people, um, who had completed suicide, and really just a sense of wanting to feel less alone. I think it's incredibly generous, courageous, and so so important to give life and give a story to something that um, is so often just not talked about and. Um, and that, you know, has humanness and dignity and incredible courage. So I'd love, I'd love to hear a little bit about you, Beth, um, since we are just meeting and, you know, what you do, where we're speaking to you from and, um, and the work that you do sure. with Family Connections. Sure. Yeah, I am um, right now I'm in Maine. Uh, at my son, uh, my oldest son, my son, Teddy's house. Um, uh, but I live in New Hampshire, so that's where I am most of the time. Um, I have been uh, working as a volunteer and a, a leader of Family Connections, which is a, a, a program run by NEABPD. And I've been doing that for about 
since 2012. And I currently serve as the international liaison for Family Mm -hmm. Connections. So I work with um, a lot of people who are starting programs all around the world. And uh, when Perry Hoffman was alive, we, we traveled all, all over the world, um, try, bringing family connections to different places. And um, now I'm also starting to co-lead another program that is uh, uh, from NEABPD called um, MSTR, which is Manage, Managing Suicidality and Trauma Recovery. Mm. And that is just starting, but I have already taught that class um, with with uh, a co-leader and um and i also work on the suicide task force with uh sylvia gelati from the new york state office of public health um and we are working right now actually on putting together a resource list to post on our website um for leaders family connection leaders who deal with suicide during the class which sometimes happens so those are the things that i'm doing now um i did take a i did i did take a hiatus i was on the board also i was on the board for about seven years six or seven years and i'm i stepped off the board but i'm still doing these uh the classes so for for those of us who don't know so i was going to ask just to tell us a little bit about what family connections is and what family connections does sure so family connections is uh it's a 12-week evidence-based program um, it was designed by Alan Frazetti and Perry Hoffman, and it's it's for specifically for family members um, and or friends or grandparents um, of people who suffer with emotion dysregulation, um, often borderline personality disorder. So people, um, you know, there are programs, DBT programs um, for sufferers, but there was before this no program for family members and. Even from my own experience, I know when Ross was struggling, I really needed help and I really wanted um, support and skills and I really wanted to learn as much as I could and and I couldn't find, I I asked, but I couldn't find anything until I just stumbled on Family Connections myself on the internet. Um, So, so it's a, it's, it, I've, I've, as I said, I've let it, co-led it for many years. And um, it's it's I, it's very transformational. It tends to be very transformational for families because it's a it's a different way of looking at their loved ones um, suffering. Because often they may, maybe they see anger or that kind of thing, but they don't really understand um, what's going on underneath that. So it's a way for them to uh, to learn to have some compassion and then. And then they can have a connection again with their loved one because often those connections are um, altered, you know, by the illness. So it's very rewarding. I would have to say that it's, I'm not, I don't volunteer for tons of stuff, but this is something that I found to be really rewarding. Um, and it's. Somebody who's listening to this and they are interested in this and wondering if they have a family connection program near them somewhere. Yes. Uh, where? What's the website? Where would you send them to learn about things like that? Like so, what so the you program go to NBABPD.org, which is the National Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder. So you go to our website, NBABPD.org, and then uh, in on one of the banners, it says family connection. 
and just click on family connections and you can register for a class. It's free um, and it is evidence-based. Uh, and we are doing them um, almost entirely on Zoom now because of COVID and Zoom has been very effective. So, so no matter where you are, actually, you should be able to get into a class. There's a wait list. That's a problem because we, we need, you know, we don't have enough leaders. So there is a wait list, but you will get on the class. And there are also resources that we, that can be sent to you in the meantime. So it's very, um, it's a very worthwhile thing to do for someone who's, who is uh, dealing with this for everyone involved, not just the family members, but we also have evidence now that it, it affects the sufferer also in a positive yeah. way, as you might expect, because their environment changes and, uh, you know, they feel understood because it's very bewildering to be a family member and to see these behaviors and think, what are you thinking? You know, the things that they're doing are seem very outrageous. And it gives you a lens through which to look at those behaviors in a different way. Well, Beth, could, could you tell everybody a little about your family? Sure. Who's, who's, sure. yeah. So Go I, uh, so yeah, I have, um, I have uh, my older son. It, it's, it's still, I have to say, it's still after all, it's very, it's still after this time, even it's hard to, you know, how to word it because I have one son now and it's very un strange thing to say, but I have, uh, my older son is Teddy. He is um, going to be 30 in September and um, he has a, a fiance, Mariah, who has known Ross for many, many years and known Ross and was um, very close with him as well. And Ross, my son was um, 24 when he took his own life two years ago. And, and my husband, Ted, uh, there are lots of Ted's, Ted and Teddy. Uh, my husband, um, Ted, is, uh, you know, obviously also um, in the family. So, uh, and we have a little dog named Andy right now. So that's us in a nutshell. You know, I want to say that um, it was uh, after Ross took his life and you and you called me and we talked uh, about it and set up more times to talk that also your husband, Ted, talked to me, got on the phone, which, you're, which is not his typical style uh, to be reaching out in that way, though he was very wonderful to talk to. And then your son talks to me and then Mariah talks to me. And within the course of a few days, I like knew the whole family and every, in the, at a very rare and tragic moment. I mean, and it really brought me very close to all of you in a certain way, even though I didn't know. So it was sort of strange. And I just want to say that, you know, the relationships included that Mariah, who sounds maybe like the most distant from the tree because she's the, the fiance, she's not. She had a very strong connection to your son Ross. Um, she they seemed seemed very close to him, she right? Did. And so we were, was like we were sibling. Yeah, we were incredibly. I mean, Raya. I mean, yeah, we were incredibly fortunate that she was part of our. I mean, she is part of our family, and she was. Uh, she was incredible with Ross. She loved him. She, you know, a lot of girlfriends. I think because they were just recently engaged. A lot of girlfriends might have been resentful that Teddy 
you know, included Ross on lot. They did a lot of things together as a threesome. And that's not always something that girlfriends are going to be up for. And she always was. And, and he trusted her. He loved her. She, he, she, I asked her to take a class with him and she did. Um, she, yeah. I mean, when they were first going out, I told Teddy, I said, if you break up with her, I pick her. <laughs> so, so you know, she, she's very sweet. She's very sweet. And we were very fortunate. And Ross was very fortunate to have her in his life. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And she was from New Hampshire too, right? And she yes. and they would come up, they would come and visit both families. And so they spent a lot of fair amount of time in New Hampshire, even though at that those yeah. days they were living in Somerville, Massachusetts. Right. And they lived, they did live, yeah, it's not that far. And they were they were in New Hampshire often. And so they and every time they came up, they would stop usually to pick Ross up and and um, take him with them. And and sometimes uh, they when he was able to travel they would, you know, he would hang out with them. So they spent a lot of time together, I would say. A lot of time. And we were always very happy about that. They were just very happy to see him, you know, doing anything. Beth, could you say a little about, uh, this might sound like it's not as relevant a question at first, but I think it really is. Like, in your life, um, over many years, so what, what have you liked doing because I think that one thing that people do when they try to cope with grief and loss is to try to return to things that are very meaningful. So tell us a little about yourself and like what you, what you liked doing or what you cared about. Um, I've always, always uh, been interested in animals. I was a horse teenager. Um, I love the outdoors. I've always loved the outdoors. We camped as a family when, uh, uh, growing up. Um, so I was always very happy to be in the woods, hiking, um, either with dogs or horses or both. And, um, uh, that's just something I, 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 growing up, I thought I would be the next Jane Goodall. That was my goal. Like, actually, that was my goal. And, um, I wanted to go to Africa and, you know, those kinds of things. So, so that was what I did when, when I, uh, in school, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, um, but I changed uh, partway through, and I got a master's degree in, in uh, behavior genetics, animal behavior. Basically, I studied wolves, so um, mm -hmm. so a little bit like Jane Goodall. But <laughs> and then I and then I uh, worked um, as a behavior consultant for veterinarians. So when we lived in Pennsylvania, I worked um, as on as I had a referral practice. Uh, I started at University of Pennsylvania and then had a referral practice for local veterinarians. So it was for animals that had behavior problems, mostly aggressive dogs, fearful dogs, things like that. So I did that for a very long time until uh, until we moved to New Hampshire and I had kids and that kind of thing. And also uh, martial arts. I was very interested. So martial arts. Oh. I did that for a very long time. And so I have um, two black belts. That's my first one I got when I was 50. And then my second one a little after that. So, so that's wow. Wow. I didn't know. Wow. Yeah. I, so I, I'm really curious, how has your martial arts training in, um, informed how you navigate life? 
Um, well, yeah, I, I, I was, um, I became, I was always interested. Uh, honestly, it's kind of silly, but I, Kung Fu was like my favorite show. That was my favorite team. <laughs> so I, you know, so I was always interested in martial arts. And when I was in graduate school, there was a karate um, school at University of Connecticut. And that's where I started. And then um, I was in a different, I was in a style of that and I really loved it. And then, uh, and then when we moved to New Hampshire, I started a different style and that's where I stayed and got my black belt there. And I used to compete and um, I just enjoyed it. It's a great, it was a great social thing. It was also very, yes. it's very, uh, it's, you have to think a lot. It's very, um, it's, it's pretty all consuming when you're doing it. So you can't really think about other stuff. You just have to focus on what you're doing completely. Mm -hmm. So that's always a good thing. Yeah. So this was your mindfulness practice training. Yeah, I want to say that when you were not too long ago, you were in Maine and you took pictures of those trolls uh, oh, the at, uh, at, a, at a seaside park or a, a nature park. It was incredible. And so, and then I went and saw them. And uh, so you've opened, uh, and, and that's not the only place you've led me in terms of suggesting hikes and things. So if, if people people could use you as a good tour guide for how to hiking in the White Mountains and in Maine and things like yes. that, I know how important they've been to you. And, yes. And your I, husband. I, yeah. and so. Hikes are us, that's for sure. Yeah, I, no, I, I, um, we hike a lot. I mean, if you, I think if you don't, if you don't hike in New Hampshire, then you don't have a lot to do. So, yeah, I love it. I do love it. I wonder if that's, if, if that we'll, we can get back to other things as we go along, but I wonder if you could start telling us who Ross was. Like, what, what was he like? And, uh, and how did his, how did things unfold in his life? He was, uh, he was our second child. Um, and, uh, Teddy, you know, as our first Teddy was very, um, cheerful, easy baby. He was just easy. Everything was just, you know, he just was, happy all the time and everything was was uh very simple and so we kind of thought we had the whole parenting thing figured out um, and that we were great and then um, ross came along and just just really just blew us out of the water you know from day one i mean he he was very everything about him was just a little extra and he was just very um sensitive and he you know he didn't sleep really and he was crying a lot and just so it was, it was tough. It was just tough. And, uh, as he got older, um, most things, most things were, um, just a little hard, harder with him. Although I have to say, you know, we all often said about him, he could make us, no one made us laugh harder and no one made us cry harder. He was, both those things because his personality also was very big and very um, infectious and very enthusiastic mm -hmm. and just uh, he was just all in and, and very intense about the things that he did. So um, it was it was challenging. We traveled with them a lot. We traveled all over with them and um, and and it was fine. I mean, I had trouble just getting clothes on him. He was not, a, you know, 
not just emotionally sensitive, he was physically sensitive. So every single picture I have of him from kindergarten is in the exact same outfit because I bought five of them because it was the only thing he would wear. It was just a very soft, uh, I, a very soft plush um, outfit. And that's the only thing I could get on him unless I pinned him down. So, so, you know, it was those kinds of things. I just had, we just learned how to deal with that. And, you know, at growing up, sort of the, 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 the punishment du jour at that time was timeout. You know, you were supposed to put your kid in a timeout if they did something. And we'd put Ross in a timeout and he'd just be like, bring it on. You know, I mean, he'd stay there all day. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he just, you couldn't, you couldn't bench him in that way. He was very much, um, very strong willed. And so I guess if Ted and I are stubborn, he got both of that. And then, I mean, just, just, uh, did not like to be told what to do, which you kind of have to do as a parent. So it was, it was like that pretty much always. And when he got to school that when he got to school, it became, um, you know, even more so. I mean, I'd drop him off at school sometimes and sometimes I'd be driving home and I'd get a call on the way home, you know, well, Ross just did this or, I mean, because if, if he got along very well with some teachers and other teachers, if he felt that they didn't like him, then he would not like them more. That was his kind of the, how it worked. So, it, you know, he would be butting heads and he was verbally extremely precocious. He was very intelligent very, very intelligent and very verbal, I'd, I'd say, like gifted verbally. So from a very young age, the things that would come out of his mouth, you know, teachers, I mean, they weren't all nice, you know, and he knew how to push people's buttons and teachers would sometimes, you know, get down on his level and be debating him. And I would say, you know, you can't do that. I mean, I don't debate him because I'll lose. So it was like that a lot. And he had extremely... He had very intense interests, in which we tried to follow um, because uh, he was different, and I knew that. And, uh, for instance, um, one of his prized possessions was a dress that I bought him. He did, tend, he did turn out later, you know, in his later life to be gender nonconforming. And I got him this dress from a young age, and he loved it. And if we had, you know, he would always identify with fem with female characters in video games, always female. Um, uh, and I, 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 um, he wasn't ever going to be the typical New Hampshire hockey player. I knew that. And so we got him into gymnastics, which he loved, and fencing and ballet and all these things. But I was driving all over the state because there's not that much of that in New Hampshire. And I think he would have, honestly, you know, maybe maybe it would have been better for him if we raised him in New York. I thought about that. I just don't know. But but um, as a boy, when he got to a certain point, it was, um, you know, he wasn't allowed on some of the girls' teams and things like that. So it was challenging to find a place for him until he became interested in theater and theater seemed to be his home, I thought. When, when did you get interested in theater? 
when he was, well, um, well, he was always dressing up. He was always dressing up, always putting on makeup and jewelry and things like that, always. Um, but, but at about 10 years old, we have a uh, New London Barn Playhouse in our town, which is a very well-respected summer stock theater. And he, um, I just signed him up for that. And it was probably one of the best things that we ever did. And he immediately, immediately was, you know, just got the lead role in pretty much everything he auditioned for. I mean, he could sing, he could dance, um, he could act. And and um, it, he was just uh, himself, like in a way that I'd never seen before. And I asked him mm. about that time. I did ask him about that because he was at, you know, eventually he was in professional theater. He had a manager in New York and he was doing, you know, big shows with lots of people. And I asked him because he was anxious outside of that. And I said, what, you know, how can you do this? How can you stand up there and sing or, you know, act in front of 500 people? And yet when you come off the stage, you're, you seem anxious. And he said, um, well, he goes, when I'm there, up there, I'm not me. And I'm someone else. I'm just not me. So it's easy. And, mm. and, but it became very clear that, uh, you know, I, I thought he found his tribe, but um, it, it, it became clear that anxiety was starting to creep in and um, it was affecting everything in his life that previously he had had no difficulty with, no uh, he was pretty much, he was pretty good at everything he tried and, and anxiety started to change that. So I, I, this might be a false lead, but I mean, it, it just seems like if I imagine him growing up in hockey rich, New Hampshire yeah. in the woods yeah. <laughs> and with all of the mountain men there and everything yes, and, and the boys and the boys that are growing up that way he was not only gender non-conforming what what did he put himself in a position where he was having to absorb any kind of like teasing or bullying or did the passion of his personality sort of keep that stuff away well that's a good question i we didn't send i didn't send him to the public school in town um uh, I was uh, very interested in Waldorf education. So both of the kids actually went to Waldorf school, which is by nature, you know, very artistic and very, uh, 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 it's different. It's a different kind of education. And so he he escaped that uh, at that time. Like, although, mm. although, you know, I would still, he was still different in, in, in many ways. Um, and then when he got to middle school, I think he experienced some of that, but, but he was very charismatic. And so mo his friends, his best friends were most of the most popular girls. So he had this group of very popular girls who I think kind of buffered him because the guys, you know, wanted to be friends with them. And so they couldn't really make fun of Ross. So I think not all the time, but I think a lot of the time that protected him, he was very in much in that group. Although uh, internally, internally, he started to really suffer just with his own thoughts. Um, about himself and mm. and realizing that you know he there was something very different about him. Mm. That's a parent. Yeah, as a parent, when he started to show these signs of anxiety, and you started, or you started to notice them, what did you make of that? Um, how did you interpret that? 
well, the first thing that we saw with him was OCD. So we saw signs of OCD. So I, um, I, I, you know, I didn't know, I, I mean, I didn't know what to do exactly, but I, I just started to learn every, I thought that was the main thing. So I started to learn everything that I could learn about OCD. I had like a little library about it and I was calling people and trying to learn about OCD and also, and also trying to, you know, uh, encourage him to see if he would see a therapist. And, uh, he was trying to mask it all this time and he was an actor. So he was actually pretty good at that. And so he was, but, but, but he couldn't hide it because it was just interfering with his thoughts and his life. Um, so like I said, I didn't know what to do. It got to be problematic, really problematic. I would say by the end of eighth grade, he couldn't hide it anymore. And he was kind of really white knuckling it through the year. And at the end of eighth grade, um, he just started to crash and it happened when it happened. I mean, he was what, like 13, about 13. And it happened really quickly. And I, 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 I was trying to talk to his friends and trying to figure out, you know, what to do, but, um, he wasn't. And I don't, I think also part of the problem was my husband and I weren't on the same page with it actually. And I wish that we were at that time, but we weren't. Um, I, I had, I just had a strong feeling that something was very wrong. And my husband kind of thought that it was a phase or that he would get better or that, you know, it would be okay. And it wasn't at all. And so it, it, it that, that wasn't helpful either. I don't think you say, sorry. Is, oh, it's not, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to ask you about the OCD. Like, how was that expressed? What What were the well, signs it was of expressed that, in, that you saw? Um, lots of things. He started to, uh, like, well, um, his eating also became a little bit disordered, I think, too. He came home from school one day and said to me, because he's hanging out with girls, right, in the middle of the school girls. And he came home and said, you know, some of the girls, they only have an apple for lunch. That's it. And I thought, and I said, huh, that doesn't seem like very much, you know, and, and then I noticed that he was starting also to restrict his calories and exercise um, excessively and also getting ready, uh, getting ready to go anywhere was just horrific. I mean, it just, we were always late. It took forever um, brushing his teeth. I mean, everything, every, and, and fiddling with his clothes all the time, all the time, especially on the way to school. So it was, um, it was very difficult to watch. And I wasn't sure what to to do about it. He was still managing to get himself to school, but it be, it became um, it became very challenging. So, but you said earlier that you know you, when he was ten, starting when he was about ten, that theater became this big thing in his life. Yes. Did did this level of anxiety or symptoms that he was having? Would did would it crash into his theater life, or did he keep that up? Was that a preserved area that he kept doing? Um, it he kept it up. It, I'd say um, it started to interfere. It did start to interfere. We started to notice there was he started to have some kind of nervous tics that we saw, um, and it, it it was starting to become more noticeable. At, by that time, he'd been that time he'd gone from community theater to regional theater. And he was doing really well in regional theater. And then he was in New York. And so it, it had, that had grown pretty rapidly. And um, we, I was starting to see anxiety, a lot of anticipatory anxiety before auditions. So, you know, bringing him to auditions, all of this anticipatory anxiety 
And then when it was over, you know, it would, he would be relaxed. And we, we, we tried to talk to him about it, but he was, um, he was getting irritable, but he was irritable, but he was also very determined to just try to just stay the course. And we tried to pull things back and slow things down. But at this point, there was a lot going on in his, in his life. Um, and yeah, the acting, it did affect his acting. It did. This kid was a force of nature. I mean, absolutely. That is the word that I use. Absolutely a force of nature. And so persuasive. I can't even tell you how so persuasive. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes I'd, I, you know, he would talk to me about something and you'd start to, you know, this thing that obviously wasn't a good idea. And you, you know, like, 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 I think we should move to Singapore or something. And, and after a little while, you start to think, maybe that is a good idea, you know, because he was just so, he would just give you all these reasons. And, and he was very, he was, his friends would say the same thing, that he was incredibly uh, gifted in that way. But, you know, not, I don't think, I don't think that ever, I don't really think his level of intelligence was a big, a huge benefit in the end. I really don't. As a matter of fact, I, I don't, because I think he, tried to think his way and learn his way and uh, out of these things that he couldn't do on it. He couldn't do it on his own, but he tried. And it was, um, it, he's, it was, it was very difficult to try to get him to do something that he did not want well, to. I think, well, I think that, that you're, you're describing him having very high verbal intelligence. And I'm sure if he was tested, that would show up. And he was, and, and yet he was using his intelligence it, it wasn't harnessed towards building his life. It was harnessed towards uh, questioning everything or doubting everything or having a different idea about everything. So it's kind of like would leave you in an existential state of feeling like there's no point. I mean, because yes. uh, nothing, no, nothing's going anywhere. And, and you talked to me about, you know, you used to try to get him to connect with certain like philosophers in uh, university departments in not far from you or something like that. I remember where you were hoping to find a place where he could have intelligent conversations with intelligent people who were at his level yeah. and that he was reading all the time. So all the time. it was sort of like, yeah. so his intelligence, it's in retrospect, it looks like maybe it actually did him harm, but I don't know about that. Uh, it's just, it, it, he was already struggling and his intelligence was probably a, a way of trying to bail out bail water out when water was collecting in the boat. I just, I just, the only thing I want to say before I forget about is that I, you know, of, of everything that affected him, his, his social anxiety, the social anxiety was the, the most, the thing that impaired him mm. the most, I think, because, mm. you know, he wanted to do these things, but he would go out in the world and it was a, it was like a tangible thing. It was almost like another entity. You could that anxiety was so tangible, and mm. it was it overtook everything else. So that was, I think, the thing that that was the most difficult. The social. Anxiety. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. Um, you know, how what was the how similar were his self perception and the perception of other people in terms of this force of nature that's so persuasive. Was he able to really take that in and appreciate that? Um, I mean, it sounds like he knew he knew he was smart. He knew he had some charisma. Yes. 
but this this anxiety and some of the insecurity and getting ready what what was he thinking what was he thinking he was getting giving off to the extent that you you know i think yeah i think what he I, he thought what seemed to be happening a lot was that I think, you know, he was really like a mess on the inside. Like he was really having trouble on the inside. And so I think he thought uh, often that if he um, looked perfect on the outside, that then um, people would people would respond, respect him and respond to him and think that he was perfect. That's what I think. So cause, so he he was very interested in looking absolutely perfect on the outside when on the inside um that was not what was going on you know but he would say things like you know when he got a license uh, his driver's license he would say things like well i'd like to have a mercedes you know <laughs> and we and we said well of course you would like to have a mercedes and and uh and, and he said well because then people will respect me then you know if you're driving around in a mercedes people will respect you and that and so he was very um, much trying to uh, have that external stuff look look all good because internally he was falling apart really rapidly, and he wasn't forthcoming with that. He really wasn't. He had a very strong drive to be normal, and you know, not be that kid who was seeing a therapist or taking medication. He didn't really want any part of that. So. Hmm. Um, what was I going to ask before? Was um, I'm thinking of him now into high school, oh. and and so when he was in high school, I, the social anxiety would be really a big deal, and yes. uh, and 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 wondering yeah. how he's perceived by other people, and did that did things continue? And, and oh, I know what I was going to ask that. By this time, by age 13, were you aware of anything like him having like suicidal thinking or any kind of delusional thinking or any stuff like that that built on anxiety and social anxiety and, and uh, self-image concerns? Yeah, not, de not delusional, but I would say um, 14, 13, 14, high school was a nightmare. High school was a complete, total nightmare. And I think um, everything fell apart at that time. So he had um, he had worked very hard to get into a school called Nobles Academy in Boston. It's one of those. It's a private school outside Boston. It has an excellent theater program. And he he had a friend there, and he wanted to go there. I think because he thought that he wouldn't be as well accepted at the public uh, high school. So he got in, and then he, he at this point he was having constant indecision about everything. And it was driving us a little crazy because, you know, one minute we wanted to do one thing and one minute we didn't want to do it. And we were trying to figure out what to do. So at that time, uh, he said, you know, he got in and um, he said, well, I don't want to go there now. And so I said, well, you know, we paid tuition for the first semester. And so you, you know, you really do. I consulted with a therapist. She told me I needed to have him go for one semester. And so I said, you know, this is what you need to do is go for one semester, then we'll assess from there. And so he was very angry about that. And that's when he put a note on his phone so that I could see it. And it said, um, I'm going to, it said, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to take the life um, from this body of mine. There are some things I can't live with and some things I can't live without. And he put it in a place where I was. And so then. Wow. 
we pan, you know, we panicked. Uh, I, I, to be honest, I did not think he was suicidal in that moment, but I, I, I did want to use it as a way to get him into some kind of treatment. And I thought, I thought that that might be the way. So we, we took, that was his first trip to the, to the emergency room. We took him down to Mass General in Boston. And, um, it was, uh, not a good experience. It really was just not a good experience. I, I, I was determined at that point he was housebound. He'd been pretty housebound. He wouldn't, he wasn't leaving the house. He was just, he'd asked me to homeschool him. Um, so that he could just be with his dogs and never leave the house. And I said, that's not really a healthy option. And so, uh, uh, I wanted, my main goal at that point was to try some way to get him out of the house. <clears throat> I thought if I could get him out into the world somehow that he would get used to it and, and get better. It was very simplistic, but that's what I thought. And so um, he was admitted into a lockdown uh, uh, situation in Boston, and he was there uh, for several days. And after he was there for a little while, you know, it, it wasn't stressful for him. And he said, he said to me, he said, I could stay here. I could. And I said, and I said, well, you can't, you know, you can't stay here because it was, it felt safe to him. You know, no, it was just, uh, he didn't have to do anything and it was very supportive and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, he, he eventually talked me into taking him out of there and um, I did, and we brought him home. And he told me that once he got home, he would go into outpatient treatment. As soon as he got home, he said, he said, yeah, I'm not doing that. There's no way I'm doing that. And so then I, I was really in a, in a pickle, I thought. So at, at any rate, there, it ended up, it ended up, he, he, at this point, he was very determined to get, to get back to school. That's all he wanted to do is just go back to school, um, back to, to, to Nobles. So he, he went for a short while, he was at McLean in, on 2E, 2 East, which is their, not their free East program, but, but sort of a general um, program where they do some DBT skills. I really wanted him to be on 3E, uh, but it was only for girls. And um, they wouldn't, they, I asked, but they wouldn't take him. Uh, there wasn't a boys program at that time. So he was on mm -hmm. this general program and um, he stayed for a little while, but I could, he just, he just wasn't buying in. He just wasn't buying into anything. He would talk to therapists and I would watch him and he would say, you know, he would talk to them and say, yeah, I, I, I'm going to work on this and I should do this. And I knew, I thought you're just bullshit. You're just, you know, you're just full of shit because he wasn't, he wasn't being honest with them. And I knew that. And um, so anyway, he did try to go back to school. Uh, he tried, I, he wasn't ready. Clearly he wasn't ready. And at that time he ran away from school. So he was in school for one, that school, that boarding school at Nobles for one night, a couple days maybe. And um, one day he just left. He couldn't take it anymore. So he left. And we didn't know he was 14 years old at this time. He was 14. He had nothing but his backpack and maybe $40. And he was nowhere to be found. And uh, we, the campus is huge. It's got, you know, a couple hundred acres of woods. And they were searching, so they they started searching for him with dogs and helicopters, and um, it was very. Ted and I were just walking around, shell shocked, like 
I didn't know if he was dead or alive. We didn't know. And then they started talking about uh, dredging the river behind the school. And it was just uh, um, very traumatic. And finally, the, the next day, um, the next day, he just uh, stepped out of a vehicle where he was hiding on the campus that they had searched. And he knew they were looking for him. And he just he just uh, hid from them and um, was actually sort of a little proud of being able to outsmart them. This is kind of what he would do to make a statement. So anyway, that was sort of that was kind of the beginning of um, you know we knew he had to go he had to go back into lockdown and then we had to do something else. And he was very angry with us. He said, "I did this to make a statement. I knew that I couldn't." I knew that I couldn't be on my own, but um, I just wanted to let you know to let you know this is how I feel. So um, at that point, you know, he said anywhere we sent him, he would run from. He just told us flat out, no matter what you do, I'm going to run. I'm not going to go where you know what you want. You know, by that by that time, Beth, it just seems like whatever else he was, and of course, there's a lot of mystery about who he was because he wouldn't really engage yeah. with somebody and talk about his inner life and and what things were going like he was this was he was not but he had a an identity of i uh, i can outlast you yes i yes. can outthink you yes. i can outtalk you and if you punish me i can outdo you i can punish myself far more than you yes. can punish me it doesn't doesn't do a thing to me. am i right i mean there's Absolutely. a certain simple, special quality that makes him tenacious yes but it was tenacious in out beating out everybody else nobody yes. could nobody could win he um, was he was relentless he was very relentless but it, he would he I, I often thought if he could direct that amount of determination towards helping himself he would have been fine but he directed no. it against himself oh. often in the service of making a statement to people who were trying to tell, you know, tell him what to do or tell him, you know, you need help. I mean, and at that point I had no skills whatsoever. I was just, I was just trying to make it through the day. And, and I had, I, I, I didn't know about DBT um, except for that little bit at McLean. I didn't have any skills that were taught to me. And I, you know, we were very, we were losing uh, connection with him because why would he talk to us? And it didn't seem like we were listening anyway. And so, so at that point, um, uh, someone at, uh, there was a therapist at, uh, associated with McLean who told us, um, well, there are these great programs in Utah and that, and you can, you can, you know, send him there. And I, I just, I mean, I thought he was out of his mind. I said, he's 14 years old. Do you think I'm going to send him to Utah? Like, you know, and he's, and he said, well, it really changed my brother-in-law or something like that. And so. I, but I, we didn't know what else to do. And there was no place else that we could bring him where he would stay. And I thought, and I didn't, I didn't think we could bring him home. So we, we did at that moment, we, um, within three days, he was on a plane to a wilderness program in Utah, which was the beginning of more problems. So that it, it all happened, you know, looking back on it, I was panicked. It all happened really fast, and uh, uh, it seemed to happen really fast. And all my decisions, or our decisions at that point, were, you know, they weren't—they were based in fear. They were based in um, desperation. 
They certainly weren't based in any well thought out, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I was making phone calls and trying to assess what to do with different people, but um, I certainly didn't feel like we could bring him home. And I, I just, I just absolutely did not. I, at that point, I had no confidence in my ability as a mom. I just felt like I'm, I'm not doing it here. This is not working. No matter what I do, it's not working. So maybe there, there will be a chance for him to have a life if I can find somebody else who can help him. And that's what we did. And so, you know, within three days, he was on a plane with two guys from crisis intervention program going to a wilderness place in Utah. And, um, this must have been terrible for you oh, guys. I swear, like when I saw him, get, I mean, he looked at me when he got in the car. There's, there are looks that he gave me that I'll never forget. And one is when he got in the car to go and he just looked at me. And at first I felt relief a little bit. I thought, okay, maybe now he's going to be on a path to, to, to help. And um, he got on the plane and, um, I, I, you know, every place he went, no matter if we sent him to a place, every place he went, he he made a statement there or had an impact. And um, like like most of the time, like no other kid had done in those programs. So and, and not for his benefit. I mean, in those programs, you write letters to parents. He worked and that's part of your way out. Right. And so he would write other kids letters because he was a good writer. So he wrote their letters, you know, to their parents saying, yeah, you know, I've made some mistakes and, and I really need to work on this. And, and then they'd go home and he'd be sitting there. And that happens in every program he went to. Oh, my God. Helping other kids and uh, wow. hurting himself. So, it, we, yeah, I just and, and as soon as he was there, it, as soon as he got there, I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, what have I done? And I just I was on the phone I mean, it was freezing cold. And I was thinking, well, you know, what are you doing with him? I had no idea what this was about. And uh, they thought I was just like some, you know, a, a really over anxious parent. And it was like minus 10. Yeah, I was anxious about that. So it was just, you know, looking back, I, you were very vulnerable. And those kinds of in those kinds of programs, um, you, you, you. In those kinds of programs, you encounter people who, act like they know what you should do. Yes. You know, absolutely. as a parent. Oh, mean, yeah. you're, you're talking as if as if they know what you should do. I mean the complexity of dealing with Ross, even as you describe in this last like half hour, is like unbelievable. It's sort of like nuclear level difficulty because he yes. no matter what you do, look what he did. He'll get anyone else out of the wilderness program, but not himself. Yes, yeah. uh, that, that's that's a remarkable thing. He's he's taking his talents and helping these other kids get out, but he's also making a statement: "I will not play by these rules. I will not go where you tell me to go, and I will not succeed at this, even if I have to like stay here forever." I mean, it's sort of like, and then you and then you have these people that are going to tell you as parents. Here's what you should do, as if there's a formula for this. Yes. You know, that's what that's what aggravates me about these situations. Yes. And I'm not faulting those people because I've probably known people in those jobs. Um, but uh, and they're very hard jobs. Yes. But it's when you hear it from the from your point of view as a parent who's trying to do everything you can. But of course, we weren't raised as parents to know how to cope with this situation. 
this is a one in a thousand situation. Yes. And, um, and, and they would, you know, they would all, they would tell you precisely what was going to happen. And often it would go that way. Like, you know, we got letters home from him. He'd send letters saying, you know, practically they're torturing me and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's awful here. And you really, you know, I'm not like any of these other kids and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that over time, it, no matter where he was over time, he eventually acquiesced and he eventually, um, you know, got some something out of these places, most of them. Um, it took a very long time and he usually had to make a very big statement first. But then he would he would he you know, he met some he met some good staff people. He did, you know, but but it wasn't what he needed. You know, it just it just wasn't what he needed. For sure, and, and and as soon as he was out of any kind of program, he was done. Like he he would just you know he's I'm good now. I'm all set. I'm good. And he really needed continuous, a, a really wraparound continuous care. And as soon as he was out, he was just all wanted to be normal and good like any other kid. And I'm good now. And he was not good. Um, mm. So it mm. was it was a very you know, and, 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 and all throughout that time, of course, he still had Teddy, you know, and his older brother and Teddy, like at that point was, it was, you know, he was in high school. It was like, he was the forgotten child because we're, you know, the whole family was focused on Ross and Teddy would come out to Utah with us, you know, once a month. Um, also, uh, when he was in a treatment center. So it was just, uh, uh yeah, I mean, it happened the way it did, unfortunately. Yes, you said you said every time he was in one of these. How many times was he in programs like this or something like this? Did he go from one well, wilderness to another yeah. or, or whatever? Yeah, program well, to another yeah, program? the way it, it went, very, it's very rare for a kid to go home from a wilderness program. So usually, you know, I didn't realize this until we were kind of in this system. And when you're in the wilderness program, then they start talking to you about, you know, he really can't go home. He needs to go to a therapeutic boarding school. He needs to go to a residential treatment center. These are the ones we recommend because there's no way he can go home. If he goes home, everything we've done with him will be erased and he will be back to square one. And so, you know, that, that was news to us. And what we did, you know, he, by this time he was very angry with us. He wanted to come home. And uh, at that, the, be the best word to describe it at that point would be, we felt trapped and very trapped. And so we did, we sent him to uh, a residential treatment center that had high school attached to it. And he was there for a year. And um, it was, it was very agonizing. We were constantly questioning whether we should take him out. And they were, they, they would beat it into your head that if you take him out, you, all bad things will happen and you will erase any progress that's been made. Never, ever leave the program. So, um, you know, and bad stuff happened there. You know, bad stuff happened there. I mean, he 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 did meet. He met uh, a good friend and mentor named Josh. That was one good thing that came out of it. But um, I I just I just uh, you don't know what you're getting into, really. You don't know what you're getting into, and I would just think you know people need to be really really cautious about that because once you're once you're in, um, it's very hard to get out. And you sign away all of your parental rights, basically. You're signing over, you know, it's essentially like you're signing over your kid. 
and and they're telling you, you know, you're not a good parent and you need to be tougher and there needs to be accountability and all these things. And, uh, you know, I still, yeah, you know, I, as you know, I've met that person, Josh, who was a friend and mentor to Ross um, at a, a later stage of this story. And uh, and he sent me a book recently that he's written and I yeah. you probably have seen it. It's called something like Bang Your Head Here. Head here. You know, it's like. Bang, bang your head here. It's like, it's for parents. I yeah. mean, it's like, you know, it's, yeah. you really have an understanding and it's a very smart book. Uh, yep. And and actually, yeah. you know, Josh is a remarkable human. Um, Ross impacted him in a big way. And actually, Ross is one of the main reasons he left that uh, that uh, residential treatment center in, in Utah. Um and, you know, and, and Ross really had that impact on lots of people. Everywhere he went, he seemed to impact people that he got close to. And, um, yeah, it was it was a it was um, a difficult time. And we felt like when he got out of there, you know, it was outrageously expensive, too. I mean, you know, it was just it's just it's just it's a, it's a it's a huge industry. And so we were spending all this money. and We thought, OK, well, so when he gets out now. He's going to be able to do life. You know, he should be able, he's been here a long time. He's had this, this therapy and he should be able to do life. And nothing was further from the truth. He couldn't do life any more outside than he could before. Um, Had he maintained any of his relationships or friendships um, with people from home? He had. So one in particular, there's a, a girl um, young woman now. Her name is Ela, and Ela and her family loved Ross. They they uh, they just you know they uh, they adopted Ross in many ways into their family since he was in middle school. And so Ela was always in the picture. She came out to Utah multiple times hmm. to see him. Um, she's she's an incredible woman. As a matter of fact, she's in medical school and she plans on becoming a psychiatrist. Um, and and not in small part, I you know she says because of Ross. Wow. So, um, yeah, he maintained that friendship, um, and that was a big drive for him. He wanted to get, he wanted to get home. You know, he always considered New Hampshire to be his home. He wanted to get home, really, ready or not. And um, so, hmm. uh, yeah, it, it just, it just, it was a very, very long, you know, very long uh, journey, and. Um, when he left there, he went to a, a, a progressive, a small progressive boarding school in, in um, Massachusetts called Buxton. It was a great school, actually. And uh, he was there for, you know, we again, he, he wanted to go there. He thought that, that he was okay. He lasted one semester there and it started to fall apart. His anxiety, anxiety certainly wasn't any better than it was before. When you're in a residential treatment center, um, there's such structure around you. It's like, you do this at 10, you do this at 11, you, do, you know, you have lunch now. It's very structured. And the, and you're also with other, all other kids who have lots of problems, um, often sometimes worse than your own maybe. And so, you know, he thought if he was okay there, he'd be okay outside and not, not at all, just not at all. So, um, he, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, he was just at Buxton for a semester. That's what he could do. You know, 
and running through all of this from the time he was 12 or 13, the level of anxiety sounds like it just stayed very high. It took different expressions over time, but he was a, he was a level, really high level of anxiety. Yes. And he had a way of coping with it of kind of like that some of which was self-defeating ways. And, and he thought he was, and he was opposing other people and he had this stubborn streak. Yes. But, and, and, yeah. was, and, and as part of that, did he have medications of different kinds for that, or or did he not? Was he not willing to take medicines, or they just weren't prescribed or what? Um, he wasn't particular. He wasn't particularly willing when he was at um, in Utah. He was on Prozac because he, he he they were giving him uh, fairly high doses of Prozac for uh, OCD. Um, so he he was on that, and he would all the kids there pretty much were on medication. So he did he did agree. He did take, well, I don't know that he could not agree, but he did take that for the time that he was there. But again, it was the situation where, you know, when he went to Buxton, he said, I'm not going to be that kid. I'm not going to be the kid on medication, even though, you know, the the, act, the reality of it was lots of kids from medication there. Um, but I think the other thing that, that we haven't that talked about very much is that, you know, the, the, the underneath all this was the fact that he... Um, he identified when he did identify as something, he identified as genderqueer and as gen, you know, he was definitely gender nonconforming. And that was the, that was a big driver for a lot of his anxiety because it wasn't such a thing then, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't on TV. It wasn't talked about so much. It wasn't such a thing. And so I think he felt, um, uh, he, he, he divulged that information at, in Utah. And he felt betrayed. That's what I think, because there was no confidentiality there. So that information was shared um, in a non in unconfidential way. And so I think it was it was a horrible, horrible, horrible. event. He self-harmed that night severely. And I, you know, I flew in that evening. It was just awful. And um so I think from that point that you know, that was a critical point. I think from that point forward, he figured you know, there's just parts of yourself that you don't share. And that's just, you just don't do that. So, because it's not, it's not helpful. No, that's huge. Of it course. was very big. There's no, there's no confidentiality in those places whatsoever. Oh. And that is very, um, so he, you know, this was his deepest, darkest secret at that time, honestly. And I felt um, we were, uh, we were very, was very angry about that. And, and still um, we felt trapped. We were very trapped. And you know, you were, I, I want to say, and then we're going to bring this to a close today, and we're going to pick up next time with where we are and with uh, any loose ends that came up that any of us think of, but also, and we're going to move forward. Um, but um, I just want to comment as a parent myself um, that it's sort of like the combination of what he presented to you, starting very young. Um, and sounds like through no fault of your own, it isn't like you were beating him or abusing him in different ways or being severe. You know, you weren't picking. He you was were asked like, that. He was asked that at the at the. You know, he was asked. Of course. Interesting. Now, I know how these things go, yeah. but it's a. But it, but he presented you with enormous challenges from the beginning, and you looked to the world around you for solutions, and the world around you had certain solutions, not very many. Um, and you tried them, and mm -hmm. including different schools and different programs, and tried to get him to be willing to do different therapies, the whole stuff with Mass General that happened. 
should we lock up? Should we do a locked up thing? Should we do a free thing? It's, you know, you were really like beating, beating around in the world saying, what do we do with this impossible situation? And you were told wilderness programs. Yes. I mean, and, and not many other things. And I've known a lot of people in this situation, right? So it's like, it's, it's sort of like you did the best thing you knew how to do with the best advice you had around you at the time. And I think it just shows that for people like Ross, um, society doesn't know what it's doing. Right. Society doesn't have the options that actually might make sense. Maybe we haven't figured out some of them. I do think DBT is a helpful thing, but I'm not even sure DBT by itself would have would have been done the trick for him because he would have he already was would, was ready to prove at a moment's notice whatever you throw at me is not going to work. Yeah, I'm going to throw it back at you. And and Tilly had been through something, and I think those must have been hopeful moments when he'd be in these programs and get through his initial uh, whole round of protest, and then he'd find somebody that was helpful. And, not, and maybe it was somebody who didn't even believe in the philosophy of the program, but he'd find a friend or he'd find a staff member who could be a mentor to him. Yes. And and and, and so he, you actually did find him some possible options. It's just so many heartaches along the way. Yes. No. I mean, yeah, Josh, Josh was a pretty life changing person for him. And there was another person too. Um, you know, originally it's interesting because originally I thought, you know, okay, it's going to, the person who's going to help him is going to be the person with the most, uh, letters after their name, you know, the person who's the expert. That's what I thought, you know, and the reality is, is that, uh, the most contact that he had with individuals generally were staff and people like that. And some of them, really remarkable you know some of them were quite bad um but some of them were were you know there was the occasional remarkable remarkable person that really did um, him and yeah um yeah. it's just interesting in that way it's not always uh it's not always who you think that would necessarily yeah. help him totally and totally. you know i just at that point we weren't really listening to him enough i I, you know, I, but, but, but the pro, you know, the, one of the reasons that we sent him to Utah in the first place is that, um, I, you know, I wanted, there were other places that I would have wanted to go, but when he told us that no matter where we sent him, he would run the one place in the country where you can send someone basically against their will is Utah. And they will hold this, you know, other places, once they're 14, they can walk out and leave, which is what he would have done. Or what he might. Yeah, you get into some of these programs in the wilderness, and and the, the people, the staff will just tell you, you know, okay, you can run if you if you can evade us, but if you do, we have to let you know there's mountain lions yeah. and there's cougars and there's snakes and there's lizards and uh, good luck. Yeah, you know, so it yeah. it becomes this trap for the kid and a trap for the parents if it isn't working. <sighs> exactly. I'm gonna we can continue now, but I think we need to stop and uh, so people can recover from hearing this uh, incredible story <laughs> and uh and you too i'm beth uh, thank you so much for thank telling you. the story and going over this which you've gone over in your own mind a hundred thousand times so it's very generous of you actually to get into it and put yourself through this um thank you you're welcome thank you I, yeah i thank you. i hope it was coherent it's it's it, it, it it's a lot of a lot of stuff happened in a short amount of time so it's hard sometimes <laughs> It's 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 as co it's more coherent than trying to raise somebody like this. 
I'll tell you that. It's yeah. like looking yeah. back on it, it's possible to see things that you couldn't see at the time. But yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're going to stop. And uh, just to let anyone know who's listening, there will be uh, this 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 podcast uh, will be followed by uh, at least two more. And so uh, keep alert to the notifications for that, please, uh, wherever you listen to this podcast. Um, could you rate, review, leave a comment, send a message, if send a message, if send a message. If you, send a, if you don't know any other way to send a message, go to my website, charlieswenson.com. Some people go there and you can access us through leaving an email comment there. And so that's just a, another place. Um, and uh, yeah. And so. And share uh, it. Hope, if, yeah. if there's anyone that you think might find it helpful, just pass it on. Thanks so much. Yeah. 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 Okay. See you. Uh, Bye. Next time. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye.